This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 465. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And, uh, well, sort of flying solo today as far as on the hosting duties of things or side of things. Because uh, we have a special guest on today's episode. Uh, today's episode titled The Path of Focused Effort with our special guest, whom I'll introduce here momentarily. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. You're going to enjoy today's show. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of, I think, really fascinating stuff. Stuff that, like, I was reading this guy's book, okay? And I was like, that's that's really good stuff like we have to have him on the podcast because our guest explains in the book some stuff i had never really heard described in that way so it's gonna be a great time today's episode sponsored and brought to you by range tech shot timers uh of course you guys that are longtime listeners followers of ours you know that uh that we are tied in with you know we pretty much are uh range tech shot timers uh range tech shot timer dot com is the or excuse me rangetechtimer.com is the website you want to go to to check out the rangetech bluetooth shot timer uh, our goal with the rangetech bluetooth shot timer was to come out with a shot timer product that is like ready for the 20 not 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 the 20th century the 21st century because all the other shot timers are still way they're back in the they're back in the 80s and 90s so uh this, this is a product that is future-proof because we can improve it and build upon it with software uh, you know, updates to the app that runs the timer. You can download and, or you can save and actually upload training data and use that to track performance over time. Uh, and best thing of all is we wanted it to be something that was affordable by as many shooters as possible. So it is the lowest-priced most feature-rich, awesome shot timer on the market. Go check it out, rangetechtimer.com. It's a place you can pick one up today. We have some in stock right now as we speak. And those are constantly, those are being made on a daily basis. So even if you do go on the website and you see out of stock, or like in stock, out of stock on a daily basis. So there's, if, if, if it's out of stock, you can still place an order. It's probably shipping the next day or so. All right? So I just want you all to know that. Also... Hey, I'm a new range shot timer shirt. Those of you watching the video feed, you can see I've got this new shirt. It says the 80s called. They want their shot timer back. And uh, so that's kind of our little dig at, at, at the way uh, shot timers seem to still operate based off of, uh, well, they kind of work the same way they've worked for a long time. <laughs> so guys, don't don't be stuck in the 80s. Come grab a Range Tech Shot Timer, and you can pick up this sweet new Range Tech Shot Timer T-shirt also on the website. You can go. In fact, we're we're running a special sale through the end of the year. Range Tech uh, on all Range Tech Shot Timer shirts. Uh, so there's there's like a polo shirt in there. There's a couple of T-shirt options and a full sleeve T-shirt option as well. well uh, save fifteen percent off using the coupon code. Goodbye 2020. All right. So it's going to run through December 31st, the end of the year. Go to rangetechtimer.com forward slash shirt sale. And again, use the coupon code goodbye 2020 and save 15% off of any of the shirts on rangetechtimer.com. All right. 
got that out of the way. We do have a special guest in an, I guess we'll say an honorary sponsor. And that is the man behind bigpandaperformance.com. His name is Charlie Perez. So, yay, there he is. Look at that. (laughs) Big Panda himself. Uh, So, I'm just going to, I'm going to preface this, you know, your introduction, Charlie, with a little bit of uh, kind of my story associated with you. you know, as I started getting involved more and more in competitive shooting locally, your name would come up in conversations all the time. I mean, you are the local USPSA hot dog, so to speak, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Charlie Perez is a grandmaster uh, shooter, uh, primarily competes in limited division in USPSA. And, uh, you know, just, just tears it up in, in the local scene. And also at, area championships and, and, and national level matches as well. So, um, Charlie's name would come up and I can't remember who, but somebody said, you got to get on his list for the classes he puts on. And I still have yet to make one of your classes, Charlie, because it seems like every time you do it, it just conflicts with my own schedule, but I've been tracking you and following you brother for a while. And then finally we actually met and we were in Tim Heron's practical, uh, shooting course, uh, uh, you know, just a couple months ago, what back in August was it? September? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, dude, like, I was, I, I was thrilled to meet you and uh, put a face with the uh, big personality and and reputation that uh, that preceded you. And so, Charlie, tell us. I mean, I've heard your story a little bit. Um, you're not you're not a guy with like a, you know, you know, a, a past, uh, uh, tactical background or anything like that. You're just a guy that one day, I guess, decided you wanted to be a, a really good pistol shooter. So, so kind of what's your story, brother? Yeah. So, uh, to ease kind of like, I, I haven't been like growing up, I grew up in Northern Colorado and we were right on the edge of Longmont, uh, just South of Longmont. So it's kind of in the country and, you know, you grew up around, like I grew up around firearms and shotguns and rifles and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, shooting in itself and marksmanship was not uh, a unknown thing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, combining shooting with a competition aspect of it was absolutely unknown as a child. You know, so um, fast forward to I'm, I'm an adult and I, I want to get into some different hobbies and stuff. And one of the one of my friends was um, he was into practical shooting and uh, concealed carry and that kind of stuff. And he offered the opportunity to do a kind of a pseudo competition slash self-defense class for several people to kind of be an introduction of like, here's what these things are about and let's be safe and that kind of stuff and show like kind of give us an opportunity to play with the toys of the game and see what it's all about. And so I uh, attended that class and it was, super basic from a perspective of like, Hey, let's, let's safely handle the gun. Let's draw safely, you know, that kind of thing. And he set up a little kind of a, a mini USPSI USPSA style stage where he like drew and shot some targets and then ran over to this other place and shot some other targets. And as soon as I experienced that, I was like, I don't, I didn't even think that that was legal. Like, <laughs> like I was waiting for the cops to show up and, you know, throw us all in jail for running around with a gun kind of thing. And, uh, since I was able to experience that as, and he, he really helped me in, you know, guiding me down 
the the path to say, hey, if you if you're really into this, so you think you want to compete in competition shooting, you know, here's some recommendations. You know, go get kind of a normal off the shelf type of gun and do some live fire practice, and then attend a few different matches to see, you know, is this something you really want to dive into? And my personality has always been like I'm an, an all or nothing kind of guy. You know, so I don't dabble in different hobbies and, you know, have a bunch of different things I like to do. I, I pretty much pick one hobby and I dive in with, you know, head first, whether that's good or bad or otherwise, but I dive in head first and I see, try to explore all the different aspects of it and try to maximize my performance and try to always be on that kind of process of learning. You know, I, I've never really had super pie in the sky goals to say, oh, I want to be, you know, the world champion or the national champion or that kind of stuff. I'm trying to try to take a different approach to say that if I'm continually trying to improve my performance, um, that's reward enough. Like, and like the, the goal is the journey, not so mm-hmm. much the destination kind of thing. And that, that's been pretty rewarding for me. I really yeah. enjoy it. So it's, it's, you're, you're, you find your satisfaction and joy in, in your pursuit of excellence for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. In, in, uh, in, in combination with the human factor, right? You know, the, the human factor that every day we're getting a day older, right? And, and yeah. every day we, we learn new stuff and we gain certain things and we lose certain things, you know? So <laughs> to me, that, that in itself, just like from a, a shooting perspective, like our vision is super important, right? And, and as we get older, our vision starts to degrade and then we got to figure out new solutions on how to resolve vision problems and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and that, just dealing with that human condition factor of it is, is always uh, a cool challenge to me. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if it was easy, I would be off to the next hobby. I'd be on competition basket weaving or, or something like that. <laughs> competition <laughs> basket weaving. I, I thought you'd say the next thing would be, you know, something food related. I mean, so well, I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> you could be like a competitive eater, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if my wife would like that though. We'll see. <laughs> um, dude. So, uh, so you, you, you decide one, you know, you're like, Hey, I like this. This class was fun. The shooting thing was fun. Let's, let's get into competitive shooting. Uh, so, you know, kind of, well, how long did it take for you to become a grandmaster? Let's, let's ask that question. I'm curious about that actually. Yeah. So, um, I started my adventure in practical shooting in 2008 and I dabble in a couple other, like I dabble a little bit in IDPA and steel challenge and USPSA and USPSA is kind of had like, to me, it felt like it had all the fun parts of it and the mm-hmm. challenging parts of it. So I focused my efforts on USPSA. So in USPSA, they have the classification system and that's a pretty decent carrot that most people have to say, Hey, I want to get to the next classification and, you know, kind of prove my performance and measure my effort in this game. And, uh, I started out, uh, in production and I shot about a month of, of production. And in that, in USPSA in production division, you have, you're, uh, restricted to 10 rounds in each magazine and just getting into the game and trying to figure out stage plans with all these different reloads and stuff. It was like super complex for me. And so I figured, Hey, let me try to simplify this whole thing by moving to a division that's still iron sights, but provides me an opportunity to have more bullets in each magazine. And so that's when I switched over to limited about a month in and Mm -hmm. shooting limited division um, I'm usually only having to do like maybe one reload or, or maybe two reloads in a really long stage. 
So that really did a good job for me of minimizing that complexity from a stage planning perspective. But to answer your question, I went from unclassified to grandmaster in limited division in uh, 18 months. Oh, geez. It's super fast. And it's funny because a lot of people ask me like, oh, you must be like naturally talented and have all these awesome skills and whatnot. And the answer really is no. I mean, I, (laughs) that when I first took that class and I didn't even know how to grip a gun. Right. And, and every shot that I would fire, I'm blinking and flinching and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I just attacked this, this hobby from a perspective of, I know what Charlie needs to learn and like how much failure does he need to l- really learn the lesson and then don't get too stuck in ruts where, it, you know, producing a lot of ineffective practice. And, and I think that that is the primary catalyst to me earning a a GM classification really quickly is that I I didn't spend too much time wasted on certain skills. Mm. And I I knew like the palatability around like how much should I practice? How, what things should I practice? When does it become, become ineffective and that kind of stuff. So that, that really helped me kind of leapfrog a lot of other people coming into the sport because they, I mean, they, it's kind of like the old GI Joe cartoons. I don't know if people remember that where they'd say knowing's half the battle, right? And part of knowing that, knowing what you don't know, you know we got to have enough experience to know some of the things you don't know. And then once you know enough, then you can work on those different skills in a more coordinated fashion that makes it a better return on investment. Mm. Yeah. I, I like that. And, and that really kind of is the, uh, the, the intent or the focus behind uh, your book, which I haven't talked about yet. And, and it's going to be, you know, a topic of our discussion here today. You, you wrote this book, what, a couple of years ago called Path of Focused Effort, a learning guide for practical shooting. Uh, and and I, I'm going to come back to that because we're going to drill you some more on a, a little bit more on like what path focused effort really means what it's about uh and and also some strategies or techniques or or methodologies for anyone that's listening whether you're interested at all in competitive shooting or not or if you're just purely like in the tactical realm whatever like i know there's going to be some takeaways for everybody today on on improving yourself uh in your performance whatever that performance is um but i wanted to ask uh real quick charlie too like so was there anything or anybody that guided you particularly through those early, you know, days, you know, say that, I mean, like that's a, that's a really impressive feat to go from unclassified to grandmaster in like 18 months. I mean, certainly there's others that have done it, but that is no, that's no easy or simple feat. Um, you know, did you take any, any other training courses during that time? Was there anybody in particular that was like uh, uh, really in, influential on you or that guided you through that at all? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, initially when you're in that, I don't know what I don't know mode, you're like that your best resource is your local shooters. You, you go to your match and you can, and that's one of the cool things about the practical shooting sports is that everybody attending the match is super respectful for one another. They're all there to help each other out and they'll bend over backwards to help each other. And you could ask someone honestly, it's like, Hey man, you know, why, why do you draw the gun that way? Or why, why is that way better than the other? And they'll give you their honest opinion. You know, so that's level one, I would say of like a free resource for good training on people that are highly focused on maximizing their performance 
is leveraging your local competition shooters. You know, if they're invested in a game to maximize their, maximize their performance, they're going to have lessons learned and experience and that kind of stuff to give you. And me knowing myself is I know I could grind through stuff and figure things out pretty much on my own. But the timeline of that is going to be way longer than, you know, asking, requesting help from others, engaging in training from other people and that kind of stuff. And that's part of like, you need to use your full tool set to achieve your goals. Right. And for me, luckily in Colorado, we, uh, we used to have, uh, the late Ron Avery, he, he passed away, um, last year and he was one of our local shooters, which was awesome on a couple different levels, like a, from a, here's somebody that you can get really good quality training from who is local. And, but as also he would attend matches and smack everybody around, you know, and from, from a performance perspective. And it was really, uh, it was a really good opportunity to see as a new shooter, what does GM level performance look like? Right. Yeah. Cause for a lot of people, when they go to their first match, you're like, their minds are blown. Like how is somebody able to gun handle that fast or shoot that fast or perform things in such an efficient manner? And for me, that was a, like a, a big monkey see monkey do moment, right? Oh, monkey sees this thing happening at a GM level. That's, that's a instantly kind of sets the performance bar to say, Hey, if a human can do it, that guy can do it. Then I can possibly do that if I train to a certain level. So I, I've taken training from many different trainers through the years, you know, Ron Avery, Manny Bragg, Todd Jarrett, um, bunches of different guys and and as much as people like just like there's pizza shops and each pizza shop is has their own signature thing and some are good and some are bad it's the same thing in the training universe like some people may train a certain concept or thing really well and another thing's not so well but the the important thing as a, a student is you need to pick out those good nuggets that are good in those training scenarios and then integrate that into your own process and so that's what I did, you know, through my formative years, I would say that the biggest performance improvement influence on me was probably Ron Avery mm. from, a, from a taking classes from him, working with him one-on-one -on -one and just shooting matches with him and yeah. being able to pick his brain. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. You know, and, and of course he, he, uh, he's a national champion. Yes. Um, you know, so like, uh, that's a, that's a, that's an awesome resource to have uh, to, you know, as a, as a disposal or disposal as a, as a resource, uh, you know, at your disposal. There we go. That's the yes. term I'm trying to use. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I never had the pleasure of meeting Ron and, uh, kind of regret that a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, we didn't, we just didn't run any, in any of the same circles, uh, you know, in his later, you know, in his later years of his life, uh, just before he passed away. And as I was kind of coming more into the industry, so to speak. And, but I, uh, respect the influence he's had on a lot of people, his association with, you know, uh, his training, uh, tactical performance center, you know, uh, I mean, he, he, he did a lot of things has, uh, influenced a lot of shooters in sports in, in a positive way. That's cool. I'm glad to, glad to learn about that actually. You're having your own uh, influence and impact on shooters, um, Charlie. So, you know, you do your own training courses. 
uh, you know, it's not like you're out, you know, doing classes every weekend or anything like that. But uh, I, I've heard nothing but good uh, from people I trust in the local shooting community that have gone through your training courses. And what I know since you published your book, Path of Focused Effort, is that's now a prerequisite. You, you know, if someone's going to sign up for your class. They're also getting a copy of the book and they're supposed to read that book before they show up that first day of training. So tell us, I mean, what, what made you want to or decide to, to write a book? So it's it primarily like there's a couple different angles of it. You know, the first angle of it was a greedy thing for myself <laughs> to assist me in conveying the content that I want to convey. And the challenge from a market and a time perspective is that like most uh, practical shooting classes are one to three days. And that that short duration that you have with people on the range or in dry fire sessions or that kind of scenario, that's not a lot of hours. And for all, like pretty much most of the adult learners, we get like we, we have a limited amount of bandwidth <laughs> to absorb content. Right. And so we get into this mode of we start listening to content actively and we, we capture, oh, that's a cool nugget. And, oh, that's another cool nugget of information. And, oh, that really resonates with me. And they get to a point where after that, the rest of the content that's conveyed turns into the Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. Even though it's still viable, good content, they're just kind of at this saturated level. So I was thinking of ways of how can I permeate their brains or give them a medium a learning medium to be able to absorb the content at a pace that works with their attention span or availability or that kind of stuff. And it just made the most sense to me is to, to write a book about it. Mm. And that, you know, basically conveying like at the start of my classes, we have a discussion portion and I always kind of had this, this feeling of I was restricting or didn't have the time to convey all the information I wanted to convey. And there's always there like there's different types of consumers of training. Like some guys attend the classes and they're like, if the gun isn't going boom, I'm not learning. And I, I feel sorry for those guys because you can be learning the whole time. It doesn't really have to go boom, that kind of thing. But for those consumers, and they have a really hard time in the discussion portion of the class because they feel like we're just sitting around yip-yapping about random stuff that doesn't matter and that they have to be physically involved in shooting in order to learn anything. So for to kind of balance the, my training product for both the intellectual people and the do stuff people, I deployed this, hey, you got to get my book and read it before we engage in training together. And that helps facilitate that discussion portion, make it a little, take less, little less time. Not so much that we're covering less content, but that takes less time to cover the same content because people already know the, what the content is, mm. right? They know the context of it. So it's not like I have to convey an idea, explain the context and explain all the whys around that. And then we can di dive into the nitty gritty details around that piece of content. The book does that. It defines the whys. Why do we do something this way versus that way? The effectivity of things one way or the other and that kind of situation. So the, the primary goal for it was really to help facilitate the absorption of training content or information better when we had the time to get together on the range. And 
you know, and as an ancillary thing, it gives them something to reference during the class and it gives them something to reference after the class. And so since I started deploying, read, like do your homework, read the book, hmm. that kind of thing, the, the classes have gone way smoother, way smoother from a perspective of it, I'm not speaking Chinese at the start. You don't have to explain all oh, this is Mandarin and this is how you speak Chinese, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> So it makes, it basically puts us all in the same wavelength, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I try to explain the content in the book is explained in a way of not, here's a fish, here's a fish, here's a fish, here's a fish, as far as skills or things to do. It's conveyed in a manner of, here's why. Here's a scenario and here's why, you, why I chose to do it this way versus that way. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's really up to the learner to make that take all the content or the, the information they have and make an educated decision on which way should I really do this? Which way works better for me and that kind of stuff. Because in the end, like for the students, for any kind of training, they only have those training resources that day, right? So if their only conduit for learning and expanding their skill set is those days on the range of the trainers, that's super limiting, right? So, kind of my methodology around training is like, Hey, if I teach people how to fish and it's basically like, how do we fish here? I'm going to give you a few fish along the way, but here's how we fish. That way, when you leave this class, you can get your own fish, right. And learn how to be an adult learner. And I, that's the other part about this, this whole adult training thing that I think a lot of people don't get is that for a lot of people, it's when, when people for, like, if you take a, a student that has never owned a firearm before. And they're like, here's this weird thing that's in my hand. It feels abnormal. That's like teaching a child from a perspective of they have no prior experience. They have no expectations, which is way more important, right? They have no experience around, Hey, I've always done it this way. I've held the gun this certain way. And that's just how it works. And the challenge with a lot of firearms owners is that they've been shooting for a long time before they're like, Hey, maybe I should go take a class. And then, so the classes really turn into not so much training. It turns into retraining. Hmm. So it's a really big effort of retraining people on how to do things and understanding the palate each person's unique palatability around what efforts do I have to go to, to retrain myself on how to do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. That makes loads of sense, man. I mean, cause in terms of folks coming through your class, you know, they're showing up and, and, and on day one, you guys are already speaking the same language, you know? Uh, and I could see huge value in that. Uh, so again, the book is path of focused effort. Okay. A learning guide for practical shooting. Uh, but dude, I, you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, there's a lot of stuff in here that's going to apply to, non-competitive shooters as well, particularly in your approach to analyzing existing shooting performance or skills and, and then figuring out really where to focus one's effort. I mean, that, that's, just, that's the idea, right? Path of focused effort. Maybe you could elaborate on that and kind of what is the guiding principle behind, uh, behind this book? So I, I think that, I mean, titles of books are interesting and <laughs> I struggled with the, the title of that book for quite a while. And um, the title is, is purposeful in the effect of 
path, meaning that if we want to improve our skills, we have to have a path, mm -hmm. right? And okay, so you get on the path. Well, if you are not focused while you're on that path, you're not going to be observant to what is needed, right? Because observant self-assessment and judgment is required in order to w understand where am I at on this path, mm. right? Yep. And then the, the final word there, the effort of you know, when you have to have a certain amount of effort in order to, you know, effect change, right? A certain number of repetitions or cycles or repeatedness and that kind of scenario in order to change or, you know, modify skills to improve your performance. And I, I think you're absolutely right from a perspective of, yes, this, this book is pointed towards the, the gun games, right? There's absolutely gun game content in there, but from a learning perspective, adult learning perspective, you could take the same methodologies in that book and apply it to pretty much anything, not just shooting related, but if you really wanted to highly optimize a process of something or anything else or skill sets of things, the same methodologies can be used in that, that are deployed in that book, right? So if you're a you know, self-defense, I want to defend my family and learn those processes of concealed carry or where do I, how do I defend myself in my own home and where do I go and tactics and those kind of things, that same valuation of each separate skill within those things, it still applies, right? So I think that that, you know, even though it's marketed towards a gun games purpose, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that the average, you know, self-defense type of gun owner could, you know, bring some value around it. And, and I mean, I, I think that from a raw shooting perspective, if, I mean, you probably know this better than I do, but the videos that I've seen of actual, like, you know, shooting scenarios where police are shooting towards people or people are shooting at police, you know, that kind of stuff, or even military engagements and stuff, people are not shooting at a lackadaisical pace. I mean, that stuff is happening at like peak of human performance at that given time scenario. And I don't see how improving your maximum peak human performance can be a hindrance. Mm. You know, yeah. I see that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I see or hear from, you know, like tactical people that kind of have a, a negative bias towards competition stuff is that they feel that, Oh, the mes muscle memory of that thing is going to get you hurt in some manner. And they, they almost, play it to an effect that that speediness or aggressiveness is a detriment in some manner and i mean i i have a hard time agreeing with that from a perspective of i mean if you're in a like an old western duel in the middle of the street with a guy you know whoever gets their gun out and on target faster with the bullet coming out of the barrel sooner that's probably going to be the guy that's going home yep right so Yep. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, you know, certainly we've, we've talked about some of these very things on the podcast before. Uh, you know, the thing that my mind has really been opened to is that some people will say, well, you know, okay. So, so people that would, uh, say something along the lines of chasing splits, um, you know, is, is counterproductive or could be, uh, a bad training scar, if you will, in a tactical sense. Um, and, and I would agree as far as like chasing splits for the sake of chasing splits is not 
particularly useful. Um, but, uh, but you know, like everything that we do in say USPSA competitive shooting is all about getting, you know, good or good enough hits on targets in as little time as possible. It's about shooting a stage as efficiently as you can. And while yes, that might lead you to do certain things or move in a way or shoot in a manner that is um, faster or perhaps more aggressive in some cases than what you might want to employ in a tactical environment, talking to people that understand both sides of this very well, my opinion is, has come to a place that, you train or you practice or you compete at this level that is like like it's 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 insanely hard it's an insanely high level of performance when you look at what the top shooters in the in our sport meaning the USPSA or even IDPA you know to to an extent as well they're a little bit slower you know they they're their games a little different but you know you look at the top levels of performance in the competitive shooting world is a very, very high level of performance as far as what you need to see, the speed you're seeing it at, then, then the speed that you're shooting those things at and the levels of, you know, the uh, standards of accuracy or precision that you're being asked to perform. And, and what I know is that doing that and training or shooting up here means that if you're going to operate down here at a more reasonable pace or more realistic pace or whatever that is, it it's that becomes like so much more manageable, particularly when you're under stress, because you can do this, but the problem at hand only requires maybe this. And it's so within your wheelhouse. It's like, eh, it's a stroll through the park. I mean, I, I don't mean to like oversimplify deadly encounters, but, uh, but, and, and then again, if, if something much greater is required, well, you, 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 you might have the, op- you, you, you might have what it takes to actually give what's required. But if you only train here and the problem at hand requires up here, you know, in terms of level of performance, you don't suddenly, it's not like the stories nobody, we hear where under nobody a rises to occasion. Yeah. Nobody rises to occasion. Right? Exactly. You're, you default to your subconscious practice skill set. Mm, yeah. You know, and that's, that's a humble pie thing <laughs> to say to a lot of people. To say that, you know, it, what you want to be able to do, do, what you feel is this is me, this is normal Charlie, as far as running from one position to another or drawing the gun from the holster and getting on target or shooting it at a certain pace. Everybody has that quote unquote normal pace of doing yeah. stuff. And we have a desired pace. We could say, oh, I want to shoot faster. But we all know that as soon as we start injecting more aggression into things, then the consistency of stuff starts to fall to the wayside. But from a, I would say from a self-defense perspective that I'm not a self-defense kind of guy, but given the quantity and the duration experience that I have in gun handling and and just shooting a gun in front of my face, I have no problems subconsciously letting that stuff happen at any time. Right. So if the, the, the quote unquote challenge is shoot a target in a match, I punch the gun out in front of my face. And if the sight picture looks good enough, my subconscious is going to send the shot. Yeah. Right. And I think that the value of training skills to that's that highly, you know, ingrained subconscious level. What the thing that people don't think about is that it affords you the opportunity to free up way more 
conscious thought throughput, right? Or bandwidth, right? So if, if you're one of those shooters that goes out and they shoot their box of 50 rounds a month, there's no way you're going to be able to learn that to a subconscious level that's going to be at a super effective pace, if that makes any sense, that's not going to force you to start to think consciously through that whole process, right? Like, okay, my strong hands on the grip here and my weak hands on the grip here and I touch the trigger here and then I'm how aligned are the sights and you're making all these conscious decisions during this critical event that's going to happen. That all that stuff takes time, right? So I'm a fan of being able to do stuff sooner. Yeah. Right. And we have, we have our first question, by the way. And so we might as yeah. well give you the opportunity to pitch it right this second. But sure. uh, where can people get your book? John from New York asks, where can I get your book? So I sell my book on my website, which is bigpandaperformance.com. You can order it on that website. Um, I currently don't stock it in any other locations and that kind of stuff, given that the uh, my customer base, so to say, is so small, it doesn't make sense to put it up on Amazon or those other places. So if you're looking to uh, order my book, you can get it on uh, bigpandaperformance.com. Yeah. And I, I'm typing the link into the uh, comments here on Facebook and YouTube right now as we speak. Make sure I spell that correct. Bigpandaperformance.com. There you go, folks. Um, yeah. So awesome. Uh, and I, I agree with all that. Like the thing that I, in relatively recent history in my shooting career have like that becomes made more clear to me all the time is just what performing at a subconscious level is really all about. And it's, uh, it's a remarkably freeing self-realization process that occurs because the things that again, used to require this, you know, insane amount of mental bandwidth as you're trying to navigate a stage or, or remember stage plan even, you know, and, and then, oh, wait, we're in the middle of the stage and crap, I forgot my reload and now everything's off, you know, or I mm-hmm. took too many shots at this one target. Now that, you know, all that just gets more and more complicated uh, the more we have to actually be thinking about the shooting. And Absolutely. It's amazing when, like, I, I think in the last year or so, I, I, I finally started to get to a place where the shooting, the shooting part itself truly occurs at a subconscious level. I mean, I, I think I maybe was doing some of that earlier than I realize even, but becoming aware of it has also been an interesting journey for me to go, oh, that's what, like, now I understand what I'm doing better. You know, now I... I'm able to actually apply some of my skills in better ways than I did before because I, I wasn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even on, on my roadmap as far as like, like I'll be honest, a lot of my own personal shooting development hasn't always been with a great degree of focused effort. Sometimes you kind of like, well, I think I need to work on this today. You know, like mm-hmm. today I'm just going to do a bunch of build drills well, why am I doing build drills? Like, it's cool. I get super good and fast at a build drill or whatever, but like your book. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to start picking at some things a little more specifically. And uh, I'm going to describe it this way. You tell me if, if I'm like way off base with this, but one way I kind of look at the way you would, you describe analyzing one's position on the path, so to speak. And then, 
putting together a plan of where to go and how to get there most efficiently is kind of like the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule. It's like, well, what are the what are the 20% of things that are going to make like 80% of the difference, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so where am I going to apply 80% plus of my effort um, that's going to, you know, make the biggest difference and the biggest change and the biggest improvement for me. So I'm not wasting time on something I've already mastered or that is not, I mean, like, while it's cool to be able to do that and put it up on the grams, you know, it just doesn't have any real practical meaning or purpose. So, uh, I mean, what would you say to that? Kind of like that, that's how I interpret some of this is like the Pareto principle as it's called. Absolutely. Like I think that the primary challenge that most, shooters that want to improve their performance have is that they have a very difficult time valuizing and prioritizing different skills to say, okay, well, how much is a draw really? How long does it take? And not just how long does it take to a random distance, but how long does that take to five yards and 10 yards and 15 yards and all these different distances and shot difficulties and that kind of stuff. Right. And how long does it take to do a draw with a step in any direction and all like all the different permutations of that, that from a a perspective of just mining or having the reconnaissance of figuring out where am I at today? That that is a big thing that a lot of shooters just don't do. Right. They, they think that, Oh, I learned how to safely draw the gun. Oh, that's good enough. You know, and they don't really measure that in a manner that affords them any kind of reward if they were to put more effort into fixing that, right? Mm -hmm. So if I measure, let's say a month ago, I measured my draw and then I observe that draw, I video the draw and I break that thing down every little step and I figure out, oh, I'm losing a little bit of time getting my hand to the gun and I'm losing a little bit of time because I'm building my grip too late. And that's just two little elements that a lot of people have problems with. But if I didn't know what that number was of my old draw, then I fix these things and then I time it again. And then I have this other number that's a shorter number, right? Then I could have that that little pat on the back and saying, hey, yeah, that 10 hours or whatever that quantity of training I put into that got me this amount of investment, right? Or this return on investment of training. So I think it's, A, it's important that we put ourselves in a mode we set ourselves set ourselves up in a manner that we have the data up front to measure well where am i at today regardless of the good bad and ugly of that right a lot of people like to go to the range and practice the stuff they know they're good at and they avoid the stuff that they know they suck at Mm -hmm. well we can all choose to consume and use ammo as we desire right (laughs) And it's fun. And like you were saying about an Instagram thing, like, oh, I could go and do a rock star build drill and, and rah, rah, put that on, on Instagram. And people think that's really cool. But how do like, like you were saying, like, how do you evaluate that ability? Right. If that, if you spent 10,000 rounds and, and, you know, a thousand hours in performing a build drill, and that didn't have a, a significant correlation to what you're challenged with in your competition shooting or your defensive shooting scenarios, you're just wasting time, right? You're just making entertainment. You're not improving skill, so to say. So in my book, I talk about uh, here's how you objectively assess your performance and then make a list of these are the different skill sets that I'm being tasked with performing. 
Um, and these would be examples like drawing the gun, reloading the gun, running from one position to another, transitioning between targets. Those are all very common skills that are we're exposed to in, in matches. And then you can value time valuate each one of those skills and say, well, how long does it take me to get into a position? How long does it take me to get out of a position? How long does it take me to draw the gun at this given distance? And all those different variables. And then once you know the time valuation of those different skills, then you can compound the frequency of when they're being leveraged, right? So like a good example that I use in the, the practical shooting game of USPSA a lot of people's training or dry fire is heavily draw focused or reload focused. And in that game that we play of USPSA, yes, we need to have an effective draw and yes, we have to have an effective reload, but in the, what we're being measured against in that 80, 20 rule, you know, the majority of the time we're not being performance measured on how well we draw the gun or how well we reload the gun. We just need to be able to do those things in a competent manner. And we're being measured on way different skills that are, are way more valuable to train than a draw or a reload. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's the primary issue that people have is that they get into this, this copycat or mimic mode of, well, I don't know how to compile my own training program. So I'm just going to copy this other guys. You know, and one of the worst questions I, I, I don't like the field is people will ask me, well, what are you training on today, Charlie? What's your training program right now? And I'll tell them, Hey, here's what I'm doing. But I also tell them that I've, I highly doubt unless you're my current experience and skill level, that that level of training or that the context of that training is probably not going to make too much sense to your given experience or skill level. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Makes tons of sense. I mean, essentially our, our practice or our training that we do, it, it should be tailored to what we need and everybody's needs is a little bit different and contexts are different. I mean, like you're talking about uh, the value say of a, of a draw, um, which, you know, a good example, and you, you talk about this in your book obviously too. Uh, but uh, it's well known that in well, in USPSA, draw is important, right? Like you don't want to be slow, but there's a lot of opportunities to sort of hide the actual tr or the true speed of that draw. Because like you said, a lot of times a, a stage start, you want to be starting moving as well. So you're kind of eating up the time it takes to draw in some form of movement to get to your first position. But mm -hmm. in Steel Challenge, it's a whole it's different whole game. Thing. You're yeah. in a stationary position and it, that draw, I mean, like you, you do that five times every time you shoot one of the stages, throw one of them out, obviously, but you, you've got four draws that are all adding up and counting to your final time on a particular stage. Very different than a single draw that may or may not be done on with or will, will likely be done with movement in a USPSA stage. Absolutely. Like, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we think about from, I think about this from a self-defense concealed carry perspective, mm -hmm. a, a concealed carry gun owner needs to be able to competently and safely draw their gun, right? In a rapid manner, but they also need to know situational awareness, right? And yep. if we put those two things, if we value those two different things, and this is, might be a perspective thing, but to me, 
I would much rather spend way more time maximizing my situational awareness skill than my draw skill. Because if I have a crappy situational situational awareness skill, then I absolutely need a top shooter, crazy fast draw because I'm always going to be behind schedule. <laughs> that makes sense from a threat perspective. Like if, if we have way better situational awareness skills, then more often than not, our gun is going to be in our hand already. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we, we know, Oh, this thing's going to happen. It's happening right now. I have the opportunity to not have to be tested on how speedily can I draw this gun? Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, like situational awareness and also kind of that, that ability to recognize a situation for what it is recognize threats as they're coming and before they're coming, because that's, that's, you know, in a, in a, in a gunfight, it, there, there is no, we, we know there's no shot timer beep, right? Um, and it's, it's arbitrary as to when the so-called, you know, gunfight beep begins, but you can miss a cue in a real life situation that, you know, if you were a little bit more aware or paying a little more attention, you, you, you may have drawn your gun a whole second or two seconds earlier. That might've been the difference maker in you coming out of that situation alive. Absolutely. Totally. Um, and I would probably add too, just interesting context as we're kind of talking about comp- competition and, 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 you know, real world type stuff um, that uh, I draw probably, I would say in the context of what we've talked about so far in, in, in the shooting context of say steel challenge and USPSA and real world gunfight, I think, the the emphasis or the value of the draw in a real world gunfight is probably somewhere between steel challenge and a USPSA stage as far as like it needs to be very speedy. Um, and so therefore we, we should spend some time, you know, we should spend some pretty good time working on draw because all, all I know is that when we do recognize the moment that that situation begins, the moment that we go, this is a threat, this is a real true threat. It's go time then I have from that moment till the end of my life, I have for the rest of my life mm-hmm. to solve that problem. And if I fumble the draw or if I suck at drawing, it might be game over. So like, it's, it's super like we don't get to put the gun into the gun fight where it's re- where the gun is needed to solve that problem. If we can't actually get the gun out of the holster and up on target. So super important. Um, but again, there's so many other things too. Like we could talk about hand-to-hand skills, you know, fighting skills, mm-hmm. even verbal de-escalation techniques. We could spend a lot of time working on that because we could talk our way out of situations or de-escalate things uh, so we don't have to actually draw the gun. So yeah, dude, I man, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, that is so spot on as far as recognizing where you know, we need to analyze our own skill set and where we lack and what's going to give us the biggest bang for, for our training buck and time. Yeah. Um, and the reality is, is adult, is it as adult learners, we all have our normal everyday stuff that we got to take care of. we got our families and our jobs and our everyday tasks that we got to do. So that usually means that we don't have unlimited training time. Right. We don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited money or ammo or whatever resource that we need to hone our skills. So that that makes it even more important to be able to effectively um, value wise the skills 
and then coordinate our training based on that value. Yep. Spot on brother. Spot on. I'm going to shift gears a little bit with you and, and we're kind of, you know, we, we've, I, I'm looking at the time. I'm like, wow, I can't believe we've actually talked, you know, this long already. It feels like it's only been 20 minutes. Um, and, and this might almost seem silly to like pick on something so specifically from your book, but it, it, it's just like really, um, your whole section on iron sights, dude, is is unlike anything I've found anywhere else or read anywhere else, and certainly unlike anything I've read in a any in, in sort of a tactical training book, which is probably you know more I'm I'm more deep on the tactical side of you know the, my library than I am on the competitive side. But um, you kind of you 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 talk in the book about your discovery, your journey, if you will, uh, through playing with different site setups, different sizes of sites, height of sites, width of sites, all this stuff. I mean, you're primarily an iron sight shooter. You compete mm-hmm. in limited division primarily. And and you've also shared with me, you know, like we were talking at the Tim Heron class a few months ago about um, how your vision has changed and how that's impacted your ability to use and see your iron sights. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of give us a, a bit of a summary of, of what that j- journey is like for you? And then I'm going to throw some questions at you, some kind of some specific things as it relates to like a, what I want to accomplish here is to get people thinking out there a little bit more about the sites they choose to put on their guns, because there's little things that you can, you know, little things that make a big difference. And I think a lot of times too, a mis- the easy thing that I think the pitfalls, a lot of people use sites that might, actually make things a lot more difficult for them to, to use them effectively. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, so I think that first off, it's very important for people to understand that the purpose to me, the purpose of sites is to be able to do whatever the next thing is as soon as possible. Right. So, and some people may think of that. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Sites, you use those to line them up and hit the stuff you want to hit. And I would say that that's, that's actually like the secondary purpose of them. Mm. The secondary purpose, yes, we want to hit what we're, we're shooting at. But to me, the primary purpose and how it kind of linkages to the gun games is that we play a game where stages are won or lost by tenths of a second, right? And in order for me to perform at maximum performance and gain tenths of a second against other people, I have to have a, a vision processing method that allows me to do whatever is required, only linger as much as I need visually on that thing, and then be able to do the next thing as soon as possible. So the primary purpose to me is, hey, it's a next thing enabler, right? And that next thing could be firing the next shot. It could be initiating a transition between targets. It could be looking for the next shooting position to run to or initiating a reload or whatever that next thing is. So to me, it's always been highly important to have a sighting system on top of the gun that affords me the opportunity to process images very, very fast. And the the easy analogy that I try to give to people is that you can, if we have two cars and our task is to drive a car and both cars can go 200 miles an hour. And the task is to run a race at 200 miles an hour. You could give somebody, one guy, a car and say, okay, teach yourself how to drive 200 miles an hour. And that guy's going to go out and he's going to go drive 250 miles an hour because he knows that, hey, if I can drive at 250 miles an hour, driving 200 miles an hour is a walk in the park, 
that's that's normal that's slow whereas another person could get in the other car and drive 50 miles an hour and say oh i want to figure out how am i really doing this and what you know what inputs do what and that kind of stuff but they don't even know what 100 miles an hour looks like much less 200 miles an hour right so we need we need a siding system that affords us the opportunity to visually process that feedback at a very high rate of speed. And as we age and everybody has different levels of quality of vision, you know, vision problems, focus problems, focus speed issues, that kind of stuff. We all need a unique solution on top of our guns, whether that's iron sights or a dot or whatever, right? To, be, to give us that opportunity to be able to absorb that input at that 200 miles an hour. And yeah. through my, my journey of iron sights, I started uh, practical shooting when I was in my uh, early 30s, right? And I had pretty good vision, right? And I decided, oh, I want to get LASIK done because I was wearing normal prescription glasses. And getting LASIK done for me afforded me to, to not have to wear prescription lenses or contacts or anything like that. For everyday life, it was awesome, but for what it actually detracted from my practical shooting skills, because it immediately slowed down my focal speed. Being able to focus from far to close or close to far, it's not that I couldn't focus between those different points. It just took way longer time. And as I've aged, I'm I'm in a a highly marinated 44 year old year old body right now, <laughs> and over the last three years. My focal speed has increased by at least double. Okay. So I have to continually change my sighting setup or my shooting glass prescription to afford me the opportunity to, with my old 44 year old eyes, how can I still process this sight picture properly and effectively at that 200 miles an hour? Right. And that, that whole voyage through different size heights and widths and all that craziness with like different depths of rear notches and that kind of stuff on iron sights to figure out, well, how much visual input do I really need to be able to process this sighting system at a, a rapid pace? It, it's an endless evolution. And what I use today, I guarantee it's not going to be the same thing that I use two years from now. Because my my vision is just going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on, and I'm going to need to figure out a different solution. Yeah, no, that's that answer your question. Yeah, no, it's great. You know, uh, uh, and, and one of the truths is for sure with this kind of s- subject is that everybody's eyes are different and unique, and and the one unique thing is like the, the the thing that I probably struggle with the most as an instructor when like working with a student and trying to understand how I can help them the best is that I can see everything. I can see, you know, their body positioning, their feet, their hands, uh, their head position. I can see all these external things. And the one thing I cannot see is what they see. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's an important thing I think to realize is that it, every we all see things maybe a little differently or at least process or interpret visual information differently or our eyes work differently. We focus differently. Like listening to you describe 
how your your focus speed has changed. That was, and we had that conversation at the at Tim Heron's class. That was actually eye opening for me because I don't think I'd ever been a part of a conversation that talked about that specific, uh, uh, you know, of a thing. And I'm like, I had never thought about, like, for instance, when you're talking with like older people, like I'm thinking of like my, my parents or grandparents. And and if they're complaining about their vision, for instance, um, they may talk about the depth that they can focus or can't focus at. They may talk about how, you know, how far they can see something, you know, that kind of thing. But you specifically talked about how your ability to focus on a target and then maybe bring that focus back to the front site, for instance, for like your, your best, most precise site picture possible and how that changed dramatically for you. And that's caused you to have to rediscover again, how to, how to shoot, how to stay at that 200 mile per hour speed. And uh, that was eye opening for me in a big way, brother. Like, yeah. And that's just one more measurable skill, right? Yeah. Like to describe that like drill that I do is that my vision without like corrective lenses on is good enough that I can see very, I can focus on things. I can still see per like perfs on a cardboard target at 25 yards. Okay. So I'll put my gun in front of my face. I'll have a hard focus on the target until I can see the perfs and then I'll kick off a shot timer then I'll move my focus back to my front sight, my iron front sight. And when I see clearly the serrations in the front sight, I'll fire the shot. And then that is a measurable focus time. That makes sense. Yeah. Like today for me, it's at like 1.75 seconds. And in practical shooting time universe, that is forever. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what I need to do is I need to use prescription shooting glasses that bring my focus closer. So I, I have plus 0.75 diopter shooting glasses that I use that that brings my focus, promotes bringing my focus back sooner or faster. And if I do that exact same drill, and when I have those shooting glasses on, I can't see the perfs just yet, but I can force my focus out as far as it can go. Then I'll do that same thing. On the buzzer, I'll bring my focus back to the front sight till I see the serrations, fire a shot. And today, with my shooting glasses, my plus 0.75 shooting glasses, that time is at like a 0.6 or a 0.5 second. So right off the top of the bat, those shooting glasses save me in focus time over a second. Wow. So that, and even that, and I would consider, like if we, and I've done this, it's kind of an interesting experiment to do with different shooters of different age. Like if I take a teenager and do that same thing, they're like almost instantaneously like three tenths or four tenths of a second of doing that harsh, hard, far focus to a hard sight focus. They can have those like bendy bones scenario, (laughs) right? (laughs) Their, their cornea can be bent way faster because it's way more malleable. Right. Mm. But that is something that I keep on my radar that if I start having scenarios where like, man, I'm having a really hard time achieving the site focus level that I need, I'll revert back to that test and say, well, has my site degraded yet again to put me in a scenario where maybe I have to bump up my prescription to like a plus one instead of a plus 0.75. But all of those scenarios, instead of just like pun intended blindly, not Mm -hmm. know why I can't see my sites good. Like I can't accept that personally. Mm -hmm. That's why I have to put like 
objectively measurable performance levels around each one of those things. Yeah. I'll tell you one other kind of eye-opening experience I've had uh, as an instructor is uh, that once I was working with an, with a student that was uh, struggling, honestly, with with shooting. And you know, if you if you just looked at it at the you know kind of at a service level, if I, if I just looked at hits on target and the time in which they were getting those hits, you would think that well, there's something seriously wrong going on here, like. We're going to find something, you know, with their grip or whatever, you know, like something seriously is wrong here. And as I started observing and really paying attention, I'm like, no, they've got things down pretty good. Like, yeah, there's a little tweak here or there we could be make, but it doesn't explain these horrendous. I mean, like we were talking at relatively close distances, very large, pretty large groups. Um, And and, uh, so we did one simple little thing and we said, Hey, take this gun, borrow this gun. You know, this is somebody else's gun has a red dot on it. Repeat that drill with the red dot instantly. (laughs) You know, he was hitting, he was hitting what he was aiming at. And it was like, aha, this, you know, cause he couldn't, he didn't have the understanding or the ability to articulate uh, his vision problem. He didn't realize yep. there was a problem there. And, but once we saw, we just put him on a singular focus plane and he could just see a dot and press trigger, all the problems went away. And it was like, okay, bro, like if you want to continue shooting iron sights, you're going to have to spend some time dialing in a prescription or something to where you can make that work. Otherwise, a simple solution is shoot the red dot, bro. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so that was a really interesting experience. One, one thing, I mean, we're kind of we're we're over time now, but I got I got to ask you this because this was in part probably part of the reason I really focused on the the iron sights part of your book was um, you talked about height of sights, depth of notches, and so forth. And I remember engaging in a conversation with. Um, uh, another actually, and actually a pretty well-known instructor, uh, I won't say who they are, but, but they were of the opinion that, um, they wanted the, like the lowest pro, like the lowest profile, but usable site you could get on a gun. And this was in a more defensive context. At least that's the world they live in. Mm-hmm. And they had reasons for that, but, and I was listening to this and I'm like, yeah, but you know, as I played around a little bit with sites, um, I couldn't really articulate why, and I still don't know that I can articulate it particularly well, but it just felt to me, and I hate talking in terms of this felt better, but that's like the best way I could describe it at the time, that uh, a, a taller profile site for me, I was able to see and track better and call shots better. And we were trying to have this conversation and it wasn't really getting anywhere because he's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, but my in practice, this isn't working for me, you know? So I'm, I'm curious if you'd kind of maybe, could you expound on, on maybe what some of the thoughts, your thoughts or logic are with different site profiles and different site pictures as relationship between front and rear and kind of like what you've discovered? Cause I think you've put a lot of thought in this. Yeah. So uh, from a competition site setup perspective, um, like my iron sight setup today is a 100 wide front and then a 125 
wide rear. So I have a 25 thousandths difference between the front and rear sight widths. Mm -hmm. And that produces a certain amount of light bar. And I've found through a lot of my own testing that if you're, if that front to rear sight gap or width difference is in between that 25 to 35 thousandths difference, that's kind of the sweet spot for most people from a perspective of being able to process an image or a, a movie of this thing wandering around in front of their face at a, an effective level when we're shooting aggressively, because we almost like the way I, I look at it is our, we're distracted by abnormal imagery. And we, we are used to, if we shoot iron sights for any amount of time, we're used to seeing a front post swim around with light bars on both sides of the post, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And once there's no light bar on one side or the other, then our brain starts to switch up and say, Oh, well, how much is it deviated? And we start actually looking at the rear notch to figure out, well, what's going on here? This looks abnormal. I don't have light bars on both sides of this, the front sight. And in my testing, I found that the more light bar feedback that I have, and you can achieve that by either more width difference between the front and rear or making the rear notch deeper. So you're basically making the light bars taller. And I found that if I make the light bars taller, then that affords me the opportunity. It's almost like making them wider, but making the white bars lighter, but you don't lose that gross misalignment resolution, like the worst case scenario. Like for a lot of people, they kind of shoot iron sights with a fiber optic in the front, or maybe a night sight bubble in the front. And they, they shoot primarily, especially shooting aggressively, like is that bulb of fiber or the um, night sight bulb contained in the rear notch, right? And then they, I, I don't think that they realize that their subconscious is doing like Herculean effort <laughs> of trying to center left and right that that bulb or that that fiber in the middle of that by using the light bars. Mm. So mm. I, I think it's important that people experiment with different widths of front sights and rear sight notches and that kind of stuff. Is it cheap to do that? Absolutely not. Like I've I've probably thrown away thousands of dollars of sights and failed experiments. And as my eyes keep changing, I have to keep changing up that profile of how wide is this front and how big is the back. And for my gun game that I prefer, this 100 versus 125 in the back, that seems to be the, the correct solution for me at a 44-year-old Charlie today, <laughs> right? It could be a different story later on. Yeah, But it, I think it's important for people to play around with that that perspective of it, of giving their subconscious mind more information to process the, the, the question of, is it aligned enough? Mm -hmm. Right. And in, in all, like in all the gun games that I play, we're not shooting slow. And if I'm shooting stationary sights, meaning that the gun returns, everything's stock still, then I fire the next shot that I'm probably shooting way too slow to be competitive. So I have to live in a universe where the whole gun or the whole sight picture or sight movie is always in motion mm -hmm. and living in that universe of I'm, I'm okay with it still being in motion. 
and putting enough practice and learning, well, how much displacement equals a hit at a given distance? And that perspective, how much can I get away with? How much displacement is too much? How much is just enough? There's a lot of practice that goes into that. And all of that is a, like basically a promoter for allowing you the opportunity to shoot sooner. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Really good stuff, man. You know, I, I think in response to everything you just said there is that my, as I kind of ponder back over my own evolution or progression as a shooter, and, as well as the, you know, the equipment side of the equation too, <clears throat> um, it seems that a lot of guns that are set up with a defensive purpose in mind um, are set up with basically a, a pretty large front sight that for the most part fills the rear sight. Yep. It's like a toenail. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I understand that some of the logic there is that, well, we want to make the front sight and the front sight dot or whatever, like as big as we can make it. So it just like, it just slaps you in the face as you're shooting the gun. You just can't miss this front sight. Um, but I, I, I kind of feel like I get a little bit lost and then I'm swimming a little bit when I don't like you're talking about, get a lot of those, a lot of light bars or light bar space. Like as soon as I lose one side of that front side, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? Versus if I always have some, a little bit of light bar space, I, I feel like intuitively the brain is like, I know what the correction is I need to make. Like where I think we're very good at making things equal mm-hmm. and proportional. And when things get a little bit out of whack, it, it's a little bit harder. You know, like in other words, where you lose that kind of that one side of that visual information uh, in terms of light bars. I, 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 dude, what you're saying is like speaking to my speaking to me, man. I'm like, that makes a lot of sense and, and, and provides some articulation to things that I don't think I could quite articulate previously so i i i thank you for that no problem um i'm I'm curious your thoughts uh i think i I know where you lie on this but uh um i'm just going to be clear and kind of set where i'm at in my own personal beliefs about this subject but i think most defensive sites and defense and and in guns that are set up that way um are setting people up to, I don't know, fail is probably a little bit of a strong word, but are, are not set up in a way that's really helping the shooter see things at speed and speed is tell you what that, you know, we could talk about avoiding a conflict and situational awareness and all this stuff. But if your gun is out of the holster and it's up on target, speed is of the essence at that point, as far as getting mm-hmm. that job done. Um, it's very common and it's a very common belief that we have a pretty big front sight that fills the rear sight and we've got three dots and quite often three night sight, you know, tritium vials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I, I'll, I'll even see uh, fiber optic set setups. It's a front fiber optic and fiber optic on the rear too. And at one time I thought like that was the thing, you know, because like intuitively as a less experienced shooter, you're like, three dots. All I got to do is line up three dots, you know, but I've since learned that that is way it's, it's distracting. Like I don't need to see where those two dots are on the rear. I sort of treat that rear notch as a window 
and that window stays relatively stable because it's directly above my wrist or my hand. And I, I just need to see that front sight somewhere in that window and make the necessary corrections or alignments uh, based on the precision level precision required for the shot. I mean, thoughts of that as far as like what you, you see on defensive sighted guns. So I think, and maybe this is going to be an answer you don't expect. Okay. But, but I think that the vast majority of self-defense guns are that, that cliche of the nightstand gun that sits in that nightstand, doesn't get practiced, mm-hmm. doesn't get handled, doesn't get dry fired. And from a, a, let me pick something up that is foreign. Cause that's really what it is. This foreign thing. Let me pick it up and execute a shot with that. Then a, a grosser site setup probably makes sense. Mm. like a three dot scenario, right? It's pretty easy to have a mental concept of I'm going to put these three dots in line horizontally and it's going to go my way. Mm. Right. Mm. Whereas when we, and if we think about it from a, a, where we, what, where's the tool, right? So if that's the nightstand tool, we go to the other side of the, the equation of, I want a high performance competition shooting gun, you know, in that scenario, I'm going to be practicing and handling and working with that thing to the point of it's an extension of my body. Mm-hmm. So kinesthetically or proprioceptually, anytime that gun is between my face and a target, the sights are always going to be 95 or better percent aligned. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then honestly, in that scenario, you could, you could take the vast majority of people's guns, take their, their competition shooting guns, take a rear sight completely off of their gun and say, go do this, you know, El Presidente and just shoot at your net normal pace. And they're going to generate pretty much the same hits as they would if they had a rear sight because kinesthetically their mechanical presentation of the gun in front of their face is, has the gun aligned very well already. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And, and that's where I, I think that, it's kind of a, like an evil mistress in the competition world where once people get to that skill level of every time a gun's in front of my face, the sights are aligned really good. They get in this mode of, well, I don't even have to use these sights anymore. I can just have a hard targets, hard target focus. And I'll just shoot at, I'll just roll my finger at this target and look for the holes to show up or just hope that I have hits out there. Mm-hmm. And the challenge that I have with that is that if you're not using a methodology of calling your shots to know as soon as the gun goes boom, where did that bullet go? There's no way that you can do the next thing immediately, mm-hmm. right? There's always going to be some built-in delay of, I go boom, boom, delay, then move the gun off the target mm-hmm. because I have to build in that delay so I don't drag the gun across the target while I'm firing the next shot. Does yep. that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's of course that, that could be a topic for a whole other day as far as like really getting into calling shots, but we've definitely talked about on the podcast and, and uh, I think calling shots is a underutilized, underappreciated skill in the tactical world or the, the real world of shooting and, and gunfights and stuff. Um, But uh, yeah. Um, so I don't think that, so I think in the tactical world that 
the average consumer of that kind of training mm -hmm. literally does not have the rounds behind the gun opportunity to learn how to call their shots. Yep. No, and I, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And that's something I hope to, to change in my own small way, you know, as far as the influence I have in classes I teach and people I interact with and also through the podcast, like it, 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 it the thing is, is we just don't even talk about very much in the defensive uh, shooting world and uh, which there, there may be reasons for that, but I, I think that there's value to be had. Um, brother, this has been really, it's been great, man. Uh, a lot of stuff to think about. And even, even your most recent, like your, your little input there on defensive sites and stuff is interesting to go and consider, you know, um, I'll just throw out as kind of like a final word on that particular part of the, of the conversation that if we are in a low light, this, this is just for my, for our listeners and viewers to consider. If you are in a low light, situation say a home defense scenario at night uh and you are being responsible in identifying your target your threat before you throw lead at it meaning you need some sort of light source okay so you got a light whether it's on the gun whether it's in your hand um to say this much those tritium vials and those white dots or whatever you're not going to see because it's going to be all washed out when you mm -hmm. light up your target. So, so <laughs> just, you know, I think the point here is we all need to continue practicing and training to get better because you want to be able to shoot in the manner. I think that Charlie has described here today. Yeah. So anyway, cool. we have a question that came right here in the end from Kilo Charlie about calling shots, but I'm sorry, we don't have time to take it. I've kept Charlie way, way longer than, than uh, I told him it would be. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to sign off here in a moment, but I'm going to give Charlie some, some last words. One more call out though, guys, head on over to bigpandaperformance.com. That's Charlie's website. If you want to pick up a copy of his book, Path of Focused Effort, I reckon, I recommend that you do it. And here's the thing, even if you aren't a competitive shooter and you think, well, there might be, you know, even... 70% of stuff in this book that might not apply to me that much. I'll tell you this much. There's some good stuff in this book, no matter who you are. And books are a remarkable thing because information and knowledge is not free. And for you to go take a class with somebody, you're going to pay a couple hundred bucks. Charlie, you're going to charge a couple hundred bucks for one of your courses. Um, and, and by the way, that's definitely time worth, you know, spent and money worth spent for sure. But then we sell books for like 20 to 30 bucks and like, yeah, it takes effort to sit down and discipline to read and work your way through it. But I'll tell you what, for the relatively low cost of Charlie's book, I promise you there's some, there's value, there's good value to be had in it. So I would encourage you to go over to bigpandaperformance.com, pick up a copy of his book. I enjoyed reading it. Um, got definitely some stuff out of it. We, we could, we could go for hours talking about transitions, about shot calling, about all kinds of stuff, movement and, 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 and that stuff as well. Uh, that there's little nuggets all along the way for me reading your book. And so, uh, but, you know, we're out of time here today. So guys go get the book, read the book. And if you're interested in 
I, I don't know that you take classes on the road or not, Charlie, but I know you teach classes a couple times a year here in the Denver metro area. Yep. Uh, basically. So yeah, I basically wrangle them together like an, on an as wanted or as needed basis. So if you uh, are interested in having me come out and do a, a class in your area, uh, you can send me a message on the uh, Big Panda website, Big Panda Performance website, and you know, send me an email and we can work out, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I want to thank Riley. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a lot of fun and hopefully cool. I can have an opportunity to do some more at another time. Sure, brother. Let's do it. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And uh, guys, one last shout out as well for today's episode sponsors, Range Tech Shot Timers, rangetechtimer.com. And we've got some cool new, you know, apparel up on the website there too, rangetechtimer.com forward slash shirt sale. Heck, maybe we'll send you a shirt, Charlie. Um, and uh, guys, use the coupon code, uh, what was it? Goodbye 2020 to save 15% up through the end of the year. And uh, that's on uh, apparel at rangetechtimer.com forward slash shirt sale. All right. We got you go. And guys, you care out there, be safe. You know the drill. You know the lingo here. In fact, the catchy catchphrase, as Steve Anderson would call it at the end of the show, here is what? Train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>